We're in a moment of reckoning and no one has control over that. And the people who have the power are clearly not addressing it in a way that uh, makes sense to people. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This month, as protests against police brutality and racial inequality have surged across America, statues and other public monuments to problematic figures from the past have come under attack, with protesters either convincing local authorities to remove them or, in many cases, toppling the statues themselves. This is not just an American phenomenon. It has spread worldwide. And it does not just concern statues of people famous for advancing racist causes, such as Confederate heroes or slave traders. It also includes some of the most storied icons in world history, whose legends we are all taught in grammar school. Winston Churchill, Thomas Jefferson, Gandhi, and no statue of any figure is coming down with as much stunning frequency as those of Christopher Columbus, the fabled discoverer of the New World. Recently, Artnet News chief art critic Ben Davis wrote a thought-provoking essay about the case to take down one particularly renowned Columbus statue. Today, to talk about what's going on here, I'm happy to have him back on the podcast. Thanks very much for coming back on The Art Angle, Ben. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so there's a lot of ground to cover here. I think we should probably just jump right in. Sure. This moment of statue toppling is clearly a major historic reckoning. And in your article, you decided to examine it through the lens of one monument in particular. Which one did you choose and why? Well, yes, I think that this conversation has originated around uh, monuments to the Confederacy, and that's a conversation that's been going on for a while now. But then very quickly it expanded to just reconsider symbols of all kinds. And one that was very notable was was Columbus. So there was a week when uh, Columbus statue was beheaded in Boston, uh, tossed into the water in Virginia, uh, dragged down with um, ropes in Minnesota. And in the wake of that, New York has been having its own reconsideration of its internal monuments for quite some time now. And people started eyeing Columbus Circle and that monument there and asking, what is going on with that monument? And Andrew Cuomo, our governor here in New York, issued a statement very firmly saying that it was off the table because of its significance to Italian-Americans. And so that led me to really look into the history of that monument, the history of the Columbus myth in general the United States. And hmm. it, it turns out to be a really thought-provoking story that says a lot about the way race and the symbolism of race has played out in the political sphere in the United States. Now, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that the idea of Columbus as a highly troubling historical icon is a new thing. When, when did you first learn about Columbus and when did you start to see the varnish come off his legend a little bit? What an interesting question. I mean, these are times when you really look into your own, the way you've been programmed, right? And I, I know that I was taught all the mythological stuff about Columbus uh, proving that the world wasn't flat and discovering America. And I know that in 1992, the anniversary of his so-called discovery of America, there were huge Native protests across the country. I'm not sure I was aware of that. As a matter of fact, what I remember from that year is that... Um, 
Ridley Scott released a film, 1492, The Conquest of Paradise. I don't think I even saw it, but I remember that the trailer for it um, actually compares Columbus to the U.S. landing on the moon. And that's where things stood in the 90s. In college, I encountered Howard Zinn's best-selling book, People's History of the United States of America, where he um, debunks all the myths and really talks about the uh, horrifying savagery of Christopher Columbus. Hmm. I wouldn't say that the mythological Columbus has been totally dispelled, but I do think that for people, I think it's a pretty standard part of liberal education, at least, to know something about the history of the United States in terms of colonization, in terms of enslavement, obviously that's been turbocharged by the social movements of last year, but it's become very much um, a general part of people's consciousness. What I wanted to add to the conversation is that, well, Columbus's crimes are well known. And even Andrew Cuomo actually says, we know about some of the bad things he did, which nobody would defend. But what I want to add to the, the conversation and what I think is interesting is really how the myth of Columbus has played out in more more recent American history as part of the political conversation. It's not just what he represents historically, but I think it's also very thought-provoking to think is what he has represented um, as a symbol since really the time in which this Columbus Circle statue was installed, which is 1892. Huh. So I know that there's been a lot written about how Confederate monuments were not erected by members of the Confederacy, but were erected after the fact in order to champion different political causes that were opportunistic for the people in power at the time. It's like a totem of white exceptionalism. But this one relates more to an immigrant story. And what is the context around the creation of this particular monument? Well, they are very different, the, the Confederate monuments and the Columbus monuments, but the historical moment is the same. It is not until the 1890s in the United States that the Confederacy becomes uh, sort of a mythology, this sort of rose-tinted moonlight and magnolias image of a noble past. And it is not until the 1890s that the Columbus myth, which after all has been a part of the United States um, from very early because the founding fathers were looking to construct a past for colonization that hmm. didn't connect directly to King George. But huh. the modern mythology of um, Columbus really doesn't happen until the 1890s either. The great historian Eric Hobsbawm has this term, the invention of tradition. And he says that it's a phenomenon specifically of the late 19th century. And this is because it is a time of tremendous upheaval, depression, labor unrest, racial unrest. And it is in that context when a lot of the past is being questioned that all these new invented pasts are created that um, provide senses of community in very turbulent times. Hmm. So what was the political narrative that this statue was, in fact, purpose-built to address? Well, in the North, the transformation of places like New York by waves upon waves of immigrants from Southern Europe. 
and specifically from Italy. And this completely changed the way cities looked, completely changed the character of urban democracy, and also brought with it lots of backlash. I mean, if you read about the way the respectable opinion considered Italian immigrants in the 19th century, it sounds just like the most revolting things you hear about Latin uh, American immigration today, you know, uh, about they bring crime, they bring drugs, they're criminals, and so on. And this led to tremendous violence against Italians. I think still considered the largest single lynching in history was against Italians, and that happened in 1891 when 11 Sicilian immigrants were um, torn apart in New Orleans. And that created a huge moment of upheaval in the country. Italy, at a certain point, broke off diplomatic ties with the United States over this incident. There was talk of war between Italy and the United States over this incident. And the president at the time, Benjamin Harrison, a Republican, was deadlocked with Congress over how to resolve the diplomatic dispute. And um, in that context, the myth of Columbus, which was an established part of the U.S. story, going back to um, the idea of Columbia as the goddess personifying the new um, continent, which was a creation of, of colonial America. Hmm. And the tradition that some Italian immigrants were bringing with them from Italy could come together around the figure of Columbus, who was both comfortingly non-alien and also a, a figure of Italian pride. And so the very first precursor of modern Columbus Day happened in 1892 when the president signed a declaration saying that there should be a day for people to remember Columbus's accomplishments. Huh. And also, this is important to me, in the context of a very bitterly contested election fight where the Catholic vote was up for grabs and it was mainly swinging to Benjamin Harrison's Democratic rival, uh, Grover Cleveland, and in a sort of desperate gambit towards the end of the election, the, the declaration honoring Columbus's legacy was part of these kind of symbolic politics trying to wrestle for different votes. I mean, I, I just want to say that it sounds uncanny that we're talking about a moment in time where horrible act of violence against a minority group in America unleashed a huge social movement that then impacted a very divisive presidential election. I mean, that sounds eerily like today. Yeah, and I, I mean, how this kind of symbolism plays out within that kind of political conversation is thought-provoking and important to get your your head around because, you know, symbolism is important. This was a big deal for Italians who had literally just suffered unspeakable communal violence and not for the first time to have their status symbolically affirmed. But on the other hand, Right. This is a tool for kind of in integrating them into the machine of American politics of sort of soothing tempers and doing it without making more substantial changes. So if you go back and read the 1892 Republican platform, Benjamin Harrison platform, you can see them putting in appeals to the vote of Catholic 
immigrant voters. You know, they talk about the importance of Irish home rule. They accept essentially uh, private schools, which is where a lot of Irish and Italian Catholics sent their children. But at the same time, literally the next sentence, they say, we also affirm all legislation to prevent the United States becoming the dumping ground for the professional paupers of Europe. So at the one hand, you can have these appeals to symbolism, to affirming the symbolism of inclusion and so on. And at the same time, it can coexist with um, kind of almost a bait and switch maneuver. It's an interesting lens to look through these debates throughout history. I think it's interesting lens to look at the present. One thing that I thought was so fascinating about your article is that you have this statue in New York being leveraged as a get-out-the-vote tool for an election. But then pretty soon after it was erected, it was leveraged by Italian-Americans for a totally different kind of political aim. I mean, it became a fascist symbol in a way. how, How did that happen? Columbus Day only becomes a real part of the of the calendar in uh, the early 1930s under Roosevelt. So, so why does it happen then? I mean, uh, Harrison had this um, Discovery Day, but it's Roosevelt who puts it into action. Well, Roosevelt really relied on the Italian vote in New York to win election. And Columbus Day was an initiative, among other people, of this Italian power broker named Generoso Pope who was an immigrant who created a cement empire. He was very connected. He had essentially mafia connections, and he purchased a very powerful Italian language newspaper, and Columbus Day was an initiative of his. He was also the head of the Columbus Day Parade for a long time, and also a militant pro-Mussolini fascist who helped bankroll Italy's 1935 invasion of Ethiopia and convinced through his powerful connections Roosevelt to remain neutral on the Ethiopian question. If you read histories of this time period, this was a tremendously um, divisive issue in the United States because black communities in the United States rightfully viewed Italy's invasion of Ethiopia as part of the new chapter in colonialism, as the domination of Africa by European peoples, whereas Italians viewed the construction of Italian nation as empowering, as winning them more respect. And there were literal street battles over this that were all encouraged by the same modern-day patron of Columbus Day. And really up through the end of the 30s, you know, you could read accounts in the New York Times where they talk about Columbus Day in New York essentially being a chance for people to revere Mussolini and parade their fascist sympathies through the streets of New York. I mean, it's, it's incredible to see how much slippage there is between one identification of a person and a monument and then another identification of a person and a monument. And now that we're in the middle of a huge Black Lives Matter protests, Columbus has taken on another meaning which, of course, he's the forefather of the transatlantic slave trade. When I was doing research for this podcast, I learned something that I I didn't know, which was on his very first day in the New World, he enslaved six indigenous people. How did the Columbus Monument in New York 
come under scrutiny now? When did this start to happen? Well, this has been a long time coming. Well, in 2015, when there was the massacre in Charleston, South Carolina, one of the reactions in the immediate wake of that was to take down the Confederate flag at the Capitol. And that touched off a huge um, wave of thinking about what symbols to white supremacy are still out there. Dylan Roof, who was the murderer in that case, had been a Confederate monument fan. Two years later, after the election of Donald Trump, when there's this Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, that's all a dispute over a Robert E. Lee sculpture. And that creates an even more intense wave of reconsideration of monuments of all kind. There are people, activists who have been working on this for a very long time, but for a lot of people, including if I were to really admit it myself, make you look at the urban environment in, in, a, in a whole new kind of way. What uh, names that were just previously just names to you, you start digging into the real histories behind them. And in the wake of that, there were a lot of protests targeting different monuments in New York going back years, but receiving new kinds of attention. And Mayor de Blasio did an audit of the city's problematic monuments and ultimately decided to remove just one. But the Columbus Monument at Columbus Circle was one of the monuments in question. So where do things stand vis-a-vis the monument right now at this moment? The one in Columbus Circle? Yeah. Well, um, it's landmarked. So, like, I've read the Monument Commission report, and they talk about how, essentially, when it came to the monument at Columbus Circle, they were split, with a majority of people favoring an approach that was additive, meaning they wanted to add monuments either at that site or elsewhere that would tell a fuller story of what Columbus really represented and also tell the story of other peoples. They also talked about changing school curriculums. They talked about performances. They talked about honoring Indigenous Peoples Day, which is uh, a move that many, many cities and states have taken to replace Columbus Day. But while some people on the commission were Definitely in favor of taking it down. The majority did not rule that way. And so they decided to add, as in add symbolism, add new works of art, add new monuments. Um, To my knowledge, none of that work has been done, you know. And in the meantime, Governor Andrew Cuomo took the move to officially get it registered and it is now officially landmarked, not to be tampered with. I mean, you really start to, to think about how baked Columbus is into into America's DNA. You mentioned, yeah, Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, is named after Columbus. Columbus, Ohio, is named after Columbus. And and I know that over there, there's even been a petition that's gotten thousands of signatures to rename it Flavortown in in honor of uh, native son Guy Fieri, a proud Columbus, Ohio native. I, I cannot speak to Flavortown as 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 a solution. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, Columbia University was originally called King's College, and they renamed it Columbia University because we didn't have a king anymore, and we didn't want to be associated with with a king. There was a new mythology and a new social order and a new name. So names are dynamic, and I think that's it's easy to say that and harder to build a consensus 
for changing some of these things. Um, but, you know, we should not just expect, but hope for that. How are political leaders on the right wing addressing the calls to take down statues? Well, I think it's a complex situation. You know, people like our president, Donald Trump, exalt in in talking about the left gone out of control, tearing down our heritage and so on. I think if you if you turn on um, Fox News, you see a lot of that. And there is a certain sense in which the attacks on monuments relocate the conversation from police brutality and the need to redistribute vast amount of wealth to do something about racial inequality onto um, a more symbolic terrain. And that's not to minimize it, but it is, they are statues. And that is much more comfortable terrain for people like the President Donald Trump who thrive off of the culture war framework politics, as in stoking the, the, the resentments against elites imposing their ways onto people who disagree with them. And um, again, that's, that's one of the things that I wanted to do in my article is, is talk about how the Columbus symbolism has always done this. I mean, it was Richard Nixon who actually created the modern Columbus Day. And very key part of Richard Nixon's thinking, his campaign strategy, was this idea of the silent majority. And in his head, and in his statements and in his strategies, the silent majority was what you call his Southern strategy, which relates to the Confederate monuments and, you know, welcoming people who are alienated by the Democrats, welcoming the Dixiecrats into the fold. But the other half of that was the appeal to blue-collar Catholics. And that meant, among other things, making an appeal to Columbus symbolism by declaring Columbus Day a national holiday and talking about Columbus as a man of Italy and appealing to the very long-standing discussions about that mythology. And, well, I'll stop there. You know, the conservatives who are saying, let's preserve our heritage, they are operating from the same principle that conservators in a museum use when they say, let's preserve the heritage of art history, of, of cultural history. What do you say to that kind of, of counter-argument? Well, look, people have been complaining about these sculptures for years. I quoted the protests around the 1992, the anniversary. You can read articles from then of Native activists saying, we're saying this and no one's listening to us. We're saying how this makes us feel. No one's listening to us. The other week when activists tore down the sculpture in St. Paul, outside of the state capitol, a um, group of Native-led protesters, and the governor issued a statement saying, People have a right to be angry, very typical po political speak. People have a time of reckoning, all that. But he said, but they should have done it the right way. You know, they should go through legal means and so on. And the man who was leading the activism said, we've been trying to do that for years. We have gone through all that, you know. And when people voice a grievance like this and they aren't heard, then it, it eventually destroying them is going to look like the only way forward. Not all of these sculptures are historically important. A lot of the Confederate ones are just 
replicas that were mass-produced and so on. Something like the one in Columbus Circle, personally, I think it has an important history. It wouldn't be my first choice to see it destroyed. I say, you know, take it down, put it in the Museum of the City of New York or something. There are many bad things about museums. Museums do many bad things. But one of the good things they do is that they serve to sterilize and recontextualize objects of historical import. That's you know, they should be studied. We should know how, how these mythologies were created. And um, we should put them in a place where that work can be done. And in the meantime, we're in a moment of reckoning and no one has control over that. And the people who have the power are clearly not addressing it in a way that uh, makes sense to people. What are some of the ways that you find compelling about how to actually, you know, come up with solutions for this problem? Well, honestly, I'm fine with them coming down. I, I really am. I mean, it's not my ideal solution, like I said, but it's if you have to decide between doing nothing and the spectacle of them coming down, I prefer the latter um, as a sort of a representation that we are not messing around. Hmm. You know, if... If we're having a social revolution, I'm much happier to have statues going under the guillotine as a symbol of a place where there's no going back than, than the alternative. But what are some other ways that have been floated to address this that don't employ destroying the artwork? Well, I mean, everybody talks about there is a sculpture park in Eastern Europe where all the monuments to communism have been sort of gathered in a specific place. So like remove them, remove the old symbolism, but then put it in a place. So you have a, a monument to how state communism told its own story. And I, I think there's a lot of merit to, to that as a way to reconcile some of these tensions. I think, honestly... There are questions I have about what kind of monuments we'll have in the future. And I just wonder if we're not moving into a time when that kind of way of telling history is not something that we do anymore. Hmm. And also just our access to information is so much greater. Your ability to, to scrutinize the specifics of different individuals lives and so on is, is so much different. I mean, I just think that the future might be more about a, a much greater level of of abstraction that allows you to get around some of these questions about who's being left out. That reminds me, the, the, the curator Hans Ulrich Obrist once said that he envisions a public sculpture of the future that is AI-generated so that it's always new and always personalized for whoever's looking at it. <laughs> well, let me say let me say one other thing, though. I just want to emphasize it. I think that it is not a coincidence that co the story of Columbus being told is this kind of mythological fairy tale history, because it's a compromise, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, between a society that is actually hostile to immigrants that it actually views them with suspicion. And an Italian heritage, an Italian community looking around for um, a usable symbolism of assimilation, integration, and pride, and so on. Also, because it is 
a story that is kind of a folkloric fairy tale, Columbus. Um, it enlists communities that have organized themselves around it in upholding a mythological idea of the United States as a place that was founded on inclusion and tolerance and life, liberty, and this pursuit of happiness, when the other side of that was always the extermination of of Native Americans, was always that Black people were 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 three-fifths of a person. You know, history is not a melodrama. Hmm. It's not always assembled of just people who are unilaterally innocent victims and mustache-twirling villains. There's There's complexity in the history of any immigrant group. So let me just ask one more question, which is, so the artist Hugh Locke has pointed out that taking down monuments doesn't, quote, solve the problems of black, Asian, and minority ethnic people in this country. It's a symbolic gesture. How valuable is it really to be engaging and spending so much time with statues when it comes to driving real social change? Well, we are not the the people who are going to position to answer, you know, where this movement uh, goes next. I think the reality is that it's easier to smash statues than it is to smash the system of racist police violence in the United States. I mean, there's a way you could look at this, which is that right now, if it weren't for these monuments and statues, what would people be doing? I mean, they'd have to be directly targeting the institutions of power. And they have to be sitting in at state houses and so on. And so in some sense, these monuments are standing as a shield between the powerful and the people in this case, because that's where a lot of the energy has gone. But for that very reason, it's, you know, uh, once they're gone, that shield will be gone. So that's, it's, that's all the more reason to advance this conversation. Well, Ben, these are, these are complex times. And it's always so great to hear your perspective on what's happening. So thank you very much again for, for coming on this show. Sure. Heavy conversation, but important conversation. So that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Eagle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.